0: The Two Kingdoms Doctrine doesn't, uh, it doesn't at all encourage people not to be involved in a, a lot of things. All it does is it, it, it tries to, to specify, uh, this is what you're doing. Uh, don't, don't confuse your work as a farmer uh, with the work of preaching the gospel. They're both very honorable. Uh, you can please God and you can serve your neighbor uh, in both of them. Just remember that they're serving different ends.
1: Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Seminary.
2: Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. What is the typical or usual approach to Christ and culture? In my experience, at least, I think a lot of pastors and churchgoers, sometimes even a lot of scholars, have a default position. And it goes something like this, uh, as a Christian, as a church even, Our responsibility is to transform, even redeem the culture around us. We are to make or or turn all uh, cultural activities into some type of Christian enterprise or with some type of Christian goal in mind. But what if that's not the case? Could Scripture paint a picture that differs from that singular kingdom type of viewpoint? What if there are actually two kingdoms? Uh, in which there's a common or natural kingdom, a a type of Babylon, in which we are exiles and sojourners. And on the other hand, there's also a redemptive kingdom, uh, one that, uh, of course, would relate to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the church. And if there are two kingdoms, how do we make sense of both of these? Is there, as, as so many Christians assume, is there a Christian way to go about commerce or music or even sports? Or do we actually look at those cultural activities in terms of the common, the natural kingdom of God and have, and, and at the same time realize there is some contrast but overlap with God's redemptive kingdom? Well, these are difficult questions to answer and certainly controversial ones that Christians have debated, not only in our own century, but in previous centuries, which is why I have asked uh, a friend and an excellent scholar, David Van Drunen, to join me on the Credo podcast. Uh, David is the Robert Strimple Professor of Systematic Theology and Christian Ethics at Westminster Seminary, California. He has served there since 2001. He's also a minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, He's authored many, many books, um, and and perhaps our listeners are familiar with some of these. Living in God's Two Kingdoms, a Biblical Vision for Christianity and Culture. Uh, He's also written a book called Natural Law and the Two Kingdoms, a study in the development of reformed social thought. Two other books I'll mention, uh, Divine Covenants and Moral Order, a Biblical Theology of Natural Law, and the last one, which I was uh, honored to have a hand in, uh, God's Glory Alone, the Majestic Heart of Christian Faith and Life, which is in the Five Sola Series with Zondervan Publishing. David, it really is a joy and a pleasure to have you on the Credo Podcast.
0: Well, it's an honor for me to be here. Thanks for the invitation.
2: Now, I think when we're discussing such a controversial issue like this, I always like to begin with definitions. Sometimes that helps us, excuse me, sometimes that helps us uh, just add clarity. Maybe clear away some of the brush. Uh, I believe it's accurate to say, as as I just mentioned a minute ago, that maybe the default approach of pastors, churchgoers to Christ and culture is a a type of transformationalism. Uh, one in which you you've probably heard the argument in, in a variety of ways. Uh, you know, since Christ has redeemed me, well, then it's just assumed it, it must be my responsibility. And, and maybe at large the responsibility of the church to then redeem all realms of society for Christ and his kingdom. But you have argued that this type of approach, and I'm painting with broad strokes, of course, but this type of approach conflates uh, God's two kingdoms, even misunderstands what the individual's role and the, and the church's role is in relationship to society maybe you could begin by just defining what are these two kingdoms, or, or two kingdoms theology is it's sometimes called, and maybe you could explain how it differs from that transformationalist approach to Christ and culture.
0: Yeah, sure, I can try to do that. I, let me just say up front, I think it, it is really helpful for you to note that uh, these are these are big issues. These are these are controversial. Uh, they're they're complicated, and I think that's really important thing to say. And you know, Christians have been debating these Christianity and culture issues for basically two thousand years. And so I think it's it's helpful to uh, to keep that in perspective. And even when we use uh, these terms like two kingdoms or transformationalism, I think it's important for listeners to keep in mind that. There have been different versions of the two kingdoms. There have been different versions of transformationalism. So it's uh, it's it just one of the hazards of talking about this issue is that you just have to be you have to be careful and nuanced and to be sensitive that sometimes people use the same terms in in different ways. So having said that, um, here's what I I understand by the two kingdoms, and and I would say I I think you'd you use the term uh, the two kingdoms theology. I don't I actually prefer not to use that uh, term. I don't I I would tend to think of the two kingdoms as a doctrine as a category, rather than as a theology. But that's just sort of uh, I guess that's kind of a side note. And I. Uh, I would derive uh, my basic understanding from the way that a lot of early uh, Reformed theologians thought about it, and it goes something like this. Is, uh, God rules all things through his Son, uh, and that is something that I think ought to be unquestionable among all Christians. Uh, God is, is, is always sovereign. He is the King over, over all things. However, if we try to think concretely about how God carries out his rule in this world, the idea is that there is a basic twofold distinction that we can make. Uh, On the one hand, uh, God is the creator and sustainer of all things, and he has this, what we might call a preservative rule in this world. One way that he carries out his uh, sovereign reign is by sustaining this world that, that he's made, and that we see the, uh, the evidence of this uh, sustaining rule in the way that he upholds human societies, uh, political communities, legal systems, economic systems. Uh, one way that we might look at this is that this is, the, uh, this is God's common grace uh, at work, uh, God sustaining this whole world all human beings uh, that are that are in it. But at the same time, uh, God also has a redemptive rule. Uh, God is not just at work in this world by sustaining uh, the things that he's made, uh, but he has a plan of salvation that he's carrying out. Uh, the gospel is going forward. Uh, people are being uh, called to Christ. Uh, they're being gathered together uh, in the Church of Jesus Christ, and that as we think about this redemptive rule uh, of God in this world, we we see it uh, particularly made manifest institutionally uh, in the church, uh, which is the place where, as Matthew 16 says, that that, that Christ has given the keys uh, of the kingdom. Uh, although I think it's also important to say that this this kingdom, this this redemptive kingdom, uh, is ultimately it's ultimately the New creations. Uh, that's that's ultimately where this uh, where this goes. So then I would I would compare that then uh, to a kind of a transformationalist uh, view. Uh, um, maybe a, a good way to put it is a redemptive uh, transformationalist view, which doesn't work with this uh, this distinction between God's preservative rule and His redemptive rule, but tries to apply that redemptive rule, the kind of its redemptive kingdom, uh, to all activities and all institutions uh, of life. Uh, And so just as uh, the Church is one way in which God's redemptive kingdom is being made manifest, so we also see it, or ought to see it, uh, in, uh, in our civil government, in our legal system, in our economic system, in our art and science and sports, uh, and so all of these areas of life also become viewed uh, through this kind of redemptive uh, lens. Um, so, Matthew, I think that's a, that's a kind of a real basic uh, summary of, of how I understand these different views. And I'm sure as we continue talking, we can kind of flesh some of that out.
2: Yes, absolutely. Uh, maybe before we... we flesh it out uh, maybe some of the specifics that we're going to get to in a minute let me just this is a paragraph that uh, I I circled and highlighted from your book living in God's two kingdoms and I just I found it clear and and straightforward and and just summarizing so much of what you argue Uh, you say here though the church benefits in many ways when such institutions function well contributions to these institutions, even when performed by Christians, do not build the redemptive kingdom as such. The redemptive kingdom is built through the church's ministry of the word, the sacraments, prayer, and discipline. Now, I like that that paragraph there because you get to the very heart of what the redemptive kingdom is about. You use you know words like the church's ministry or um, the, the means of grace, uh, the gospel being preached. Uh, through the Word, the the sacraments, prayer, discipline, and you 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 set that next to and, and compare that to in, in so many ways. Um, just the what you've described as the the common or the natural uh, kingdom in which uh, there's all kinds of activities, but uh, God's rule and reign are over both. But but our responsibility to both maybe looks a little bit different. Maybe we could maybe maybe the. The best way to move forward here is to talk about mission, uh, because maybe that's where things get a little bit uh, muddied or confused or conflated. Uh, you know, some will argue, well, the mission of the Christ is identical to the mission of the church, and, and they'll argue that Christ's mission includes the redemption of creation and the reversal of the curse. This brought poverty, disease, social injustices into the world. And let's say as a result, the church then should be outspoken, involved in cre- creation care, should, should work to rid society of poverty, disease, social injustices, and so on. Now, if if we define and equate m- mission in this sense, the missions of Christ, mission of the church, does that in any way weaken the uniqueness of Christ's person work? And, and how might, based on everything you just said, how does this... Two kingdom doctrine um, to to you know pay attention to your qualification a minute ago doctrine differentiate say between the mission of Christ mission of the church.
0: Yeah, yeah. Thanks for that. I think the uh, this, this this whole question about you know what what is the church supposed to be doing? What is the church's mission? Uh, alongside the, the the question about how are we as as Christians, as individuals or groups of, of Christians, to, to live in this world, I think that's an important um, implication or uh, uh, issue that goes along uh, with uh, the two kingdoms doctrine. So, it seems to me that in in the um, if we're going to think about the mission of, of Christ more more broadly, uh, we recognize that uh, that the ultimate result of Christ's redemptive work is to bring a new creation. Uh, that, that's what our, our hope is. There's a new heavens and a new earth. And in this new creation, there uh, we're going to have resurrected bodies. There's going to be no more sin. There's no more illness. No more death. No more injustice. Uh, it will be a perfectly righteous society in every sense. Uh, and now, I think as we as we think about that, we do have to recognize. Uh, that the promise of the realization of those things uh, is at Christ's return, Uh, that we are not—this is that the promise of uh, that sort of a perfect society is not something that we, uh, by our own efforts as believers, can kind of bring about, or we can, you know, sort of get a third of the way there, or a halfway there, and Jesus kind of— kind of cleans up uh, the rest uh, at his return. Uh, so we, we, I think we have to recognize that uh, Christ is going to bring about this perfect, uh, this righteous new creation, and he's going to do it by his own sovereign power uh, on uh, uh, at his return. Now, then we also have the question then, uh, what is the Church supposed to be doing in the meantime? Uh, what role does the Church have in... Advancing that mission of Christ, and here I would argue very strongly that uh, the church's mission is what Jesus says it is, and the only way we know what the church's, or the only way we know what Jesus says uh, that the church's mission is, is what we find in the scriptures, and. Um, those things that you read in that paragraph uh, from my book, I would say those are the things that we know that the Church is supposed to do. It is supposed to—it's uh, supposed to go out into all the world and uh, to preach the Gospel, uh, to make disciples, uh, to be baptizing, to be teaching uh, all the things that uh, that Jesus taught. And uh, it seems to me that that means that the Church—there are a lot of things that the church. Uh, is not called to do uh, it is not called to be a political player it's not called to be an agent for economic development it's not called to be the person who uh, or the uh, the party that brings uh, wonderful health care uh, to the world uh, that's not what the church uh, has been called to do it's been called to preach the gospel uh, baptize uh, pastorally build up of the church um, and those sorts of things. And now, here again, and this is this is maybe uh, another question that you want to get to. Um, but that doesn't mean that Christians are not involved in trying to make the, their their societies better places. Um, but I think the big question is um, uh, what what does the New Testament say that the Church's work is supposed to be? What, what is the Church's role in uh, advancing Christ's redemptive work? And uh, I think it's very important that we, um, that we adhere to that rather than try to make the Church into an all-purpose kind of organization that might, um, that might seem good in our own eyes, but isn't really the New Testament vision.
2: So David, it sounds like if I'm hearing you right, that there is a distinction. I think uh, you would argue there's a biblical distinction even <clears throat> between, say, the individual the individual's role, or you know someone who's a Christian, their role in society and say the the church's role in society. that that distinction, would you agree that distinction must be there and it, it would look different.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's very important. Uh, so, uh, you know, as we are, uh, as as we as individuals uh, are in this world, uh, we have a multitude of responsibilities. We don't all have exactly the same responsibilities, since we, we find ourselves in different places, with different opportunities, with different talents. Um, but uh, we as Christians are called uh, to be living in this world, to be working Within it, and to be promoting uh, good uh, wherever we are, Um, and so that means that Christians are called to do a a number of things that the church itself, the church as an institution, uh, is not uh, is not called by Christ in the Scriptures uh, to do. And so, I mean, I, you know, I, we see out in this world that there is uh, illness. Uh, It's certainly good for us as Christians as we seek to love our neighbors. Uh, it's good for some Christians to become doctors and nurses. It's good for many other Christians to support um, initiatives that can uh, bring better health care to people. Uh, and so it's it's a wonderful thing for us to do that, but that doesn't mean that the Church itself is called to be a purveyor of health care. Um, and I think part of this, uh, then to, to kind of swing us back to the two kingdoms uh, uh, idea, I think we as Christians, as we're involved in things like healthcare in this world, that we can recognize that this is not something that is uh, uniquely given to Christians. Uh, God has given uh, medical uh, skills to many non-Christians and, um, non Christians and non Christians non-Christian doctors and nurses and medical researchers uh, uh, can and actually do uh, do many things that uh, can actually promote what is good uh, for the health of our societies. And uh, as we, uh, under God's common rule, uh, we Christians can collaborate with non-Christians who are involved in these other uh, things, we don't need to see this as some sort of a uniquely uh, Christian calling that we have. Uh, the, the Christian who's a doctor or a nurse or a medical researcher uh, is certainly serving Christ uh, in doing that work, uh, but it's the sort of thing that uh, that Christian can uh, do alongside uh, the non-Christian. Uh, uh, and uh, I think that that uh, that, that's an area of life where I think we see some payoff uh, with this two kingdoms distinction.
2: We've been talking to David Van Drunen about two kingdoms. Let's take a break, though, and hear from one of our sponsors.
1: Midwestern Seminary's Doctor of Ministry degree program is your next step in training for local ministry. The Doctor of Ministry program at Midwestern Seminary is designed to equip and train leaders with a commitment to the local church, with multiple emphases available, including counseling, church revitalization, expository preaching, leadership, and missions, among others. Your program provides the equipping you need in practical theology for direct church work and ministry leadership. And because all of our doctoral programs are modular, you don't have to leave your current ministry to pursue your degree. For more information, visit mbts.edu today. That's mbts.edu.
2: We're back from our break and ready to talk to David Van Drunen again about what these two kingdoms consist of. You know, I don't know about you, maybe you've had this experience, but in my experience, you know, if we, if we think about what you just said, it can be a huge uh, relief, <laughs> uh, just a, a huge relief. Yeah. It, it, I, I've oftentimes seen Christians <clears throat> with great intentions, but, but uh, godly Christians. Who are in say a secular workplace and they're just so frustrated because they're year after year they're they're determined desperately trying to um, transform whatever vocation they have into something Christian and and there's all kinds of ways this comes out you know they may they might say something like maybe they have a business or you know something in commerce or maybe like you were just saying, maybe it's something in medicine or science or education. It could be music, sports. It could be a whole variety of things. But they'll usually say something like, well, I've just been trying so hard. I really want to make this my ministry. I really want to, to make this a Christian calling. Uh, and that's a real frustration for them and a real burden in so many ways. I mean, would you say, have you had this experience as well? It, in what way is it a relief? To Christians, that it's almost liberating, uh, right. this type of two kingdom understanding. Not not as if all of a sudden they act secular in their secular vocation, but they actually understand God's rule applies here, but in a in a way I, a very different way.
0: Right. Uh, yeah. the The short answer to your question is yes. I have seen that on many occasions, and uh, there's no doubt that there are a lot of Christians out there who feel this sort of Burdened uh, to somehow Christianize, somehow find this uniquely Christian way of doing these things, and I think it just it's um, it's liberating uh, because it, it 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 communicates to to Christians to serious Christians. I mean, Christians who uh, uh, are to be admired and and praised for wanting to be faithful uh, in whatever occupation they find themselves in. But it, it's it's a way of saying that uh, there are there there may not actually be a uniquely Christian way of uh, of doing uh, a certain kind of surgery. Uh, there may not be a uniquely Christian way of flying an airplane or of uh, constructing a bridge or of mowing a lawn or of changing a diaper. Uh, and uh, that doesn't mean that there aren't more or less excellent ways of doing these things. Um, God has made this world, he's made this world with uh, with order, uh, he's made this world, uh, there, he's, he reveals a, his natural law uh, in this world, and there are certainly, there are good and bad ways of doing all sorts of things. Uh, there are more and less excellent ways of doing uh, so many of these things. But I think if we understand that things like surgery and bridge building and changing diapers, um... They they really fall under God's common rule uh, uh, in this world, and I think Christians can recognize that uh, uh, unbelievers can have really good insights about these sorts of things as well. You can learn things from uh, unbelievers, and if you do this work well uh, as a Christian, your work might look a lot. It, it might look very similar uh, to that of an of an unbeliever and I I, I, I I guess my encouragement to to Christians would be uh, to say uh, you know maybe God uh, isn't uh, looking for you to try to create some uniquely Christian space uh, for this what what God calls you to do uh, is to pursue excellence uh, in this but it's an excellence that you can try to pursue alongside God uh, the unbeliever, and hopefully uh, one in which you'll be able to collaborate with unbelievers to one degree or um, another. And I think also, Matthew, if, if I can, if, if I can also add this, I, I think it's also liberating for the church as a whole because I think a lot of churches feel a lot of pressure as though, as though they have to be involved in so many things. Uh, they have to. Um, they have to be promoting social justice. They have to be um, promoting um, economic development. They have to be supporting health care, whatever. Uh, and, you know, it's... Uh, the way I would put it is uh, the Church has a hard enough time doing the things that Christ actually commanded it to do, right. such as preaching the Gospel faithfully, shepherding the flock, uh, And so uh, we can't really expect uh, the Church to thrive at the things that uh, Christ has commanded it to be doing if the Church gets scattered in so many different directions and is trying to do a hundred different things uh, rather than focus on on really doing well and faithfully uh, the things that Christ has commanded.
2: Now, when we talk about this two-kingdom understanding, and, and I really like how you just put it, it, this is actually meant to help the church thrive, uh, and and if yeah. we understand how these responsibilities differ in these two kingdoms, it's liberating, it's, it's a relief, it actually helps the, the Christian, uh, as they go into a vocation, it helps them then to to think about it differently and excel to seek. I like the word you used uh, excellence to, to look for excellence rather than trying to, to Christianize uh, every single vocation. And then on the other hand, with the church uh, it calls the church back to those responsibilities that are so central to its own identity. Um, and, and we've talked about some of those, the preaching of the word, the sacraments um, now the the, Probably, I, I mean, I, in my experience, probably the the biggest objection uh, at this point is usually, well, if we go this route, this is going to stifle the church's social witness. Uh, it's gonna, it's going to lead individual Christians to just ignore society, or or maybe the the pressing needs of society. And and you know, let's be honest, there there are many, there, and some of them are are serious. Um, that. In light of that type of objection, how how does a a two kingdoms viewpoint, how does it actually protect and you know we've talked about how it protects the unique witness of the church. How does it do that? and And maybe I could press us a little bit further and ask, you know, how does it lead a Christian um, you know, the common assumption is, well, you must just put your head in the sand, right? And maybe you get that sometimes. Um, but how does it actually lead Christians or the church at large? To uh, to to view the needs in the world around them in a way that's that's healthy, rather than just neglectful. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It does, and it's it's a really good issue to raise because uh, I I have I have heard this objection many times. You know, that uh, the two kingdoms kind of leads to a sort of quietism, or a sort of uh, it justifies a kind of indifference or lack of. Uh, activity uh, in the broader world. And, you know, it's not to say that there may not be some people who will appeal to the Two Kingdoms idea to defend something like that. uh, That is undoubtedly uh, that that has happened. But, you know, just, just to begin answering your question, I think it's really interesting and maybe ironic that when the two kingdoms idea was uh, when 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 that first began to crystallize, at least the, the terminology of, of the two kingdoms uh, in the Reformation era, uh, one of the one of the real benefits or the real purposes uh, of that two kingdoms uh, doctrine was to uh, elevate and honor the ordinary vocations of. Christians uh, there was uh, there's a real concern by a lot of the reformers that medieval Catholicism uh, had really denigrated the experience of ordinary Christians in their in their ordinary work uh, kind of elevated the work of monks and of uh, those who had these so-called religious callings uh, and uh, really didn't value those who were you know, who are farming and who are blacksmiths and who are ordinary mothers and fathers. And uh, someone like uh, Martin Luther, uh, who talked uh, about the two kingdoms uh, in his own way, uh, one of the things that that, that he was trying to communicate is that um, uh, God is the one who is, uh, he's Lord of all of life. Uh, it's not just sort of these uh, small number of holy callings that uh, that are really honorable, uh, but that the ordinary work of the farmer, uh, of the mother, the father, of the blacksmith, of the doctor, uh, whoever, uh, that these are actually honorable callings uh, in which you can uh, you serve God, you can love your neighbor, even though we can make a distinction between this kind of work and the work of Preaching the gospel, so I think that's uh, I think that's important to keep in mind historically that the two kingdoms do- doctrine in its origins was never meant to say hey it's okay for Christians not to be involved it's okay for Christians just to you know just do church things and kind of minimize your involvement in, in other things in fact it was it was just the opposite uh, it was actually a way to try to to uh, honor uh, the ordinary work of uh, Christians and serving one another, serving serving one's neighbor uh, uh, in society. So that's one thing that I would that I would say. Um, you know that the two kingdoms doctrine doesn't uh, it doesn't at all encourage people not to be involved in a, a lot of things. All it does is it it, it tries to, to specify um, this is what you're doing. Uh, don't don't confuse your work as a farmer uh, with the work of preaching the gospel. They're both very honorable. Uh, you can please God and you can serve your neighbor uh, in both of them. Just remember that they're serving different ends. Uh, and um, I would say then also that by by making this distinction, uh, you free the Church to be, uh, to be speaking the Word of God. Uh, and... Uh, as the church uh, refocuses upon doing what the Word instructs it to do, and in teaching all the things that are in the Word of God, um, that is going to uh, uh, how to put this. This is this is the route for sanctifying Christians, for building Christians up in godliness and in wisdom. And as the church does that, Christians ought to be all the better equipped to go out and. Um, to be, to be wise, to be godly, to be honest, to be industrious uh, in all the various uh, callings that they have.
2: That's very helpful. Uh, I the per, the application there, you know, the the image there, the, the farmer, the preaching of the gospel, both wor- both worthy, both very important, but serving different ends. I, I that type of precision it goes a long way, I think, and as you said, kind of freeing the church to understand what god has called it to do now and and i like that you've tied this back to to history because i think you're right the the tendency in that type of objection to to these two kingdoms is to say well there's just indifference here you know you're apathetic or a type of quietism or you know you're just kind of exit from society uh that's the, the the view but you're right i mean historically that that actually hasn't been the motivation um, now you've mentioned the reformers. Um, maybe you could tease that out a little bit more uh, in terms of this two kingdom understanding. Uh, where do we? Is this just a innovation in, in the last hundred years, or it, does this actually have some strong, rich historical roots?
0: Yeah, it definitely has uh, strong historical roots. Uh, the place in history where we see people starting to talk about two kingdoms uh, is at the Reformation. I mean, there there are certainly uh, precursors, of predecessor ideas to this, and in in my book that you mentioned, uh, Natural Law and the Two Kingdoms, I talk about some of these uh, earlier medieval and patristic uh, era predecessors. But it's really in the Reformation where people start talking about the two kingdoms and. Martin Luther is the figure that it's most uh, associated with, and that's, I, I think that's justified in the sense that he, he certainly did talk about that, and he tried to uh, think about uh, a lot of the implications of that. But I also like to point out, and I think it's very important, that uh, it was not just Luther and the Lutheran tradition uh, which had this, is that um, uh, in the Reformed theological tradition, uh, you definitely see this. Uh, John Calvin uh, had a very explicit uh, uh, two-kingdoms doctrine. Uh, Many of the later 16th and 17th century Reformed theologians, I mean, uh, a a great many of them uh, developed uh, a two-kingdoms distinction, or they often called it the the twofold kingdom of Christ and uh, it was different in certain respects from the Lutheran version, although it also has uh, had some similarities. And there were uh, there were uh, Baptist uh, theologians uh, uh, who, who who picked this up as well. So I mean, it's uh, it definitely has a long uh, history. But I think part of you know part of the problem uh, in recent years is that is that uh, a lot of people have assumed that this is only a Lutheran uh, idea, and that's and that's just historically not true. And I think I think also part of the problem uh, is that uh, people people will look, say, at uh, Germany uh, with 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 all its rich uh, Lutheran history, and they look at how uh, the uh, the church uh, in the early to mid uh, 20th century, kind of capitulated to Adolf Hitler, and they'll say, well, this is a result of the Two Kingdoms idea. And, you know, without getting into too many details, <laughs> I would say that that, is, that, that's, that just has really nothing to do with the historic Two Kingdoms uh, idea. So I, I'd, you know, part of my own work is trying to rehabilitate this, this doctrine, this category, and to point out uh, what, what it has meant historically and um, to try to clear away some myths and to see if we can kind of uh, refurbish the idea and to give it a, a, a stronger biblical uh, basis now.
2: Now, David, maybe we can conclude here by uh, talking about America and, and maybe answer, answering a couple of questions as to some of the dangers you see in America in our own day. Dangers say go in the, the direction of just rejecting any any type of two kingdom understanding. Maybe you could even address for a minute American evangelicals. Um, how, how do you think, for example, American evangelicals have, have they suffered? Are they suffering in certain ways from ignoring this two kingdom understanding?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. It's 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 a really big question. I'm not. Uh, I don't consider myself. You know, sort of an expert on American evangelicalism, but you know, as I as I hear you ask that question, one thing that comes to mind is, is just to think about how how the pendulum tends to swing, or how it how, how it has swung. You know, I think that there have been uh, big pockets of American evangelicalism uh, that have actually had a kind of a quietistic. Uh, mentality uh, that had kind of a negative view uh, of ordinary occupations or just you know you, you maybe did ordinary uh, occupations so that you could feed your family and support your church but you know the uh, the only real action uh, is in the church and its missionary work uh, but I think what you've seen uh, what 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 we have seen uh in recent decades, is you have a kind of a pendulum swing in the other direction. I think a, a lot of evangelicals have have recognized that that's that's not really that's not really a very good mindset to have. That's not doesn't really reflect uh, a biblical uh, view of our of our place in this world. And so the pendulum has kind of swung in the in in the opposite direction. And you have so many evangelicals that have embraced a kind of a transformationism uh, where Uh, Now, instead of kind of downplaying or uh, being kind of indifferent about a lot of social, political, um, uh, broader cultural things, now these things become uh, like the all-consumingly important thing, you know, to dive fully into the culture wars, um, to get very involved in uh, political Movements, even letting the church sort of get swept up and being kind of used as a player or as a pawn in other people's political wars, and I guess to to kind of put this briefly now, I, I, it seems to me that that part of the reason that you see this kind of swing of the pendulum is that there isn't. I, I, I just don't see a really good uh, theology of Christianity and culture that has uh, been able to. Uh, Give evangelicalism some sort of stability, uh, and it seems to me that uh, a good conception of the two kingdoms could provide a lot of what American evangelicalism needs in in, in this regard. Uh, that the choices are not simply, are we going to be quietistic or are we going to be transformationalist? Uh, there actually is something that you might say is well, I don't know if if you, you want to say it's middle ground or something like that. but there's a different way of looking at it that enables us as Christians to be active in this world and to take responsibility uh, for um, our lives in this world uh, without getting swept up into some sort of uh, redemptive transformationalism.
2: We've been talking to David Van Drunen, who is a professor of systematic theology and also Christian ethics at Westminster Seminary, California. I would encourage our listeners, if you haven't read any of David's books, uh, please do. These are uh, some of the books he's written, and we've been talking about uh, sometimes some uh, abstract or heady matters, but many of these books then get into some of the practical consequences of, of uh, this two-kingdom understanding. Uh, David's mentioned some of those, whether it's, you know, you're, you're in medicine, uh, or, or surgery, uh, or perhaps you're in commerce or, or some type of scientific field or education, whatever it is, uh, some of the practical applic- uh, applications of this two-kingdom view come out uh, in many of David's writings. Uh, I would encourage our listeners to, to look at uh, Living in God's Two Kingdoms with Crossway. Uh, you may also want to look at God's glory alone, uh, especially the, towards the end of it, where David gets into some of these issues to a degree, If you are feeling like, okay, I've got a grasp of this, and you want to dive into the deep end, uh, jump into his book, either his book, uh, Natural Law and and the Two Kingdoms, or his other book, Divine Covenants and Moral Order. That will take you a little bit deeper into some of these discussions, both theological and historical. Uh, One of the things I love about his book, uh, Natural Law and the Two Kingdoms, is that he gets into the Reformed tradition and clears away so many misconceptions, stereotypes, caricatures about two kingdoms and transformationalism and more or less sets the record straight, I think, and uh, gives a a nuanced but very well-researched historical understanding. Uh, Pick up one of those books. I think you'll find it uh, very helpful. And and these are issues that, uh, again, uh, as David mentioned at the beginning, they're, they're not easy to work through. Sometimes it's very complex but uh, we do have a responsibility to do so as uh, we think through, well, what is our responsibility as a church? What is our responsibility as an individual uh, in this world? David, thank you so much for coming on the Credo Podcast.
1: It's my
0: pleasure. Thank you.
1: Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith, and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.